Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Gekonia, east of the albino hills and south of the raging leucistic river, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, fellow reptile enthusiasts, and especially to our gecko people out there. Today is March 23rd, 2014, and we have a special show tonight uh, planned for you. Uh, Tonight we have Joe Hupp of Australdonian Geckos and Dark Frogs with us. Joe is considered to be the Shaolin Monk of Geckos. I just coined him that name. Um, He's a keeper and breeder of Australian geckos and other rarer species that are coveted by gecko enthusiasts. Our discussion will cover a wide array of species and locales, including specific husbandry. Uh, We'll also likely hit on dark frogs. There are so many different and amazing species available for us to work with today. And the point of this whole episode um, is basically to diversify and also to um, basically broaden your horizons and help you to consider adding something a little more exotic to your uh, collection, okay? And in the second half of the program, we're going to open up your phone lines for your calls and questions, and um, I believe Joe is going to be offering a special uh, prize for callers tonight, uh, and we'll do the usual raffle and such uh, like we always do. Uh, so I just want to thank everybody that's already in the chat room and people that will be tuning in. Looks like we've got about 12 people. Let's see. we got Angela, Brooke, Elsa, a bunch of guests. We have Mike, Soft Kitty, Steve Barker, Mike Preston. Um, wow. Okay. A lot of great people in there so far. So, yeah, everybody tune in and uh, get yourselves in the chat room and get ready for a great show. Uh, but just uh, stand by for one minute because... Gecko Nation Radio would not be possible without our awesome sponsors. So check them out. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need. From Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more. And all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or 
It can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www.rainbowmealworms.net. abdragons.com is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches, whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps. abdragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt Reptile Heat Tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. Ohio Gecko is famous for amazing tangerines, snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at ohiogecko.com and at expos in the northeast. He is also the owner of geckoforums.net. Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species, including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit SupremeGecko.com for his available animals and supplies. Okay, everybody, we are back. And, um, wow, I'm really excited about tonight. I'm actually just getting done looking over Joe's page, and he has, oh, he's working with, like, over 100 different species. And uh, it's just going to be amazing. Um, before we get started, though, uh, here at Declination Radio, we are total enablers for people with gecko and reptile, as you know, okay? And if you are hooked on geckos or know someone who is, you have to join or get them to join Gecko Farms. Check this out. Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Gecko Forums is the most extensive database of leopard gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further. Visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. Okay, everybody. And also, I'd just like to um, just remind everybody that our sponsors uh, really take care of Gecko Nation Radio listeners. So take advantage. AB Dragons, in particular, uh, gives a 5% discount at every at checkout of every order. Just type in Gecko, and you're going to get discount. And mention us to the other uh, sponsors and they'll take care of you. All right, also, listen to Herpentine Radio. Herpentine with Justin and JD is a great show that's very diverse topics, all different areas of herpeticulture, including conservation, and they just did a great job covering the, the Texas Rattlesnake Festival, um, which was a very important event. So definitely look into that, everyone. Okay, 
um, we're not going to waste any more time. We're going to get we're going to get right into things now. I'm going to go ahead and bring on Joe. Um, where are you, Joe? Joe is right here. Joe Huff, you are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Awesome. How's it going? Good, Joe. What's going on? Uh, a whole lot of nada. Just got done spraying down all the rooms. Oh, cool. Um, I've coined you the Shaolin monk of the gecko world. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I, can, I can roll with that. That works. <laughs> okay, cool. Because you're into martial arts and you have a crazy amount of geckos. You're basically a master of both of those. And I just think sure. it's really appropriate. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah, what it, are? It, it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just saying that fits. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, well, you know, we usually we you know we bring on a new guest for the first uh, you know it's the first time people have heard of you on Gecko Nation Radio. Um, we'd like to just get a brief history of how you got started in in herpetoculture. Um, and more in, more uh, specifically, how you got interested in, in geckos. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Joe. Sure. Um, the first reptiles I ever kept were uh, box turtles. My dad and I built a uh, an outdoor uh, enclosure when I was a kid. I was probably about 9 or 10 years old, and uh, I'm 39 now. And since I was a kid, I've always uh, bred fish and reptiles and amphibians just like an enclosure or two at a time until about 20 years ago when I kind of got bit and uh, bit into herpetoculture. And uh, it just kind of went from there. I started uh, one rack before I knew it. It was one room before I knew it. It was two and just been kind of rolling with it ever since. That's cool. And you and I were talking during the week about how uh, we're roughly the same age. I'm 37. And, you know, when we started doing this, uh, of course, we didn't have access to the Internet. So, you know, we really had to earn our knowledge. And um, how did you actually learn what, you know, everything that you know now today? How did you learn it? Well, I mean, back then, you know how it was. It was um, TFH books that were half good information, half we just didn't know yet. It was a lot of trial and error. You know, I mean, it was reading everything I could about those parts of the world, those specific habitats that those animals were from, and just doing your best until you got them to breed. Because like you mentioned, there was no Google. Um, there were no great resources online at your fingertips like there are now. And something I'd like to press on people, too, is don't ignore books over the Internet because some of the best people out there doing field work that you can get that information from still only publish in books. So it's, uh, it's a source of information not to lose. That's important. You're right. And, you know, it's in, on the Internet, there is a lot of great information. But you don't always know, especially like new people today and, and young people that are just getting started, it seems like, some, like people think that, all right, because it, I Googled it and because it's on the Internet, it just must be true or it must be factual. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually get people calling me on occasion or emailing me about a species I've bred for over a decade, and they'll try and argue a point over something that they read, and I'm always polite about it. And there's certainly always more than one way to achieve success with uh, with a project. But 
Yeah, yeah, you um, you kind of have to learn by trial and error sometimes, you know. If I go with an Internet source on a rare species, I go by a rule of three. I always look up at least three sources of information, and I'm a little bit of a nerd, so if I can, I'll find 20. But I kind of mm-hmm. try and field out the truth from that, you know. Has this person produced this species? Does it look like they've really worked with them for a while? And do I find commonalities with other things that I'm reading? You know, because some of these newer species that come in, I've got some that are undescribed. Um, you can really only get that information by talking to the people that have been in that area, looking up the map coordinates, getting on the Internet, and actually finding out what's the average rainfall per month, what's the average temperature per month, and just kind of, you know, rolling with your little bag of tricks that you can pull out of your hat on what you can manipulate with your environment from there. Um you know that's interesting. That you, that's a good point. Uh, it seems. And let me ask you this. Uh, in in the I'm primarily a leopard gecko breeder, and I'm I'm just fascinated by all the morphs that we have, and that's it's my main cup of tea. And yeah. a lot of yeah, a lot of people enjoy that. And it seems like today, because of the ease of care and the uh, the diversity and the amount of leopard geckos uh, that there are, there are a lot of breeders out there. So it seems today that in leopard geckos in particular, there can be a lot of competition, but um, I've talked to the old school breeders, and they say that it wasn't always like that. In the beginning, people, we didn't have a lot of them, so everybody was always trying to find information. People are a lot more helpful towards each other. And I'm wondering if, you know, you work with a lot of the rarer species, Joe. Do you think that, uh, in your opinion, do you find that people are just basically trying to help each other and gain more knowledge at this point, or is there a competition, too? I, I think that it's getting better. I think now more than ever, people are more willing to work with each other. Before information was readily accessible, I think people felt that they earned what they knew, and they kind of didn't want to share that. I've never had that viewpoint because my opinion is if you make it better for everybody, everybody's going to make it better for you. You never know. That first time you talk to somebody buying that first crested gecko, you know, that first bearded dragon, you might be getting bloodline trades from them 10 years down the road. You know, it, I think it's right. important to encourage everyone. Right. And uh, like that, that information philosophy. can be shared openly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I basically built my reputation that way by sharing my knowledge and gaining knowledge from others. And um, like you, when I started, you know, I, I basically had to write to breeders. We had to get price lists in the mail. And I basically learned a lot about lizard behavior by watching a community of anoles, and I would literally sit in front of a 20-gallon high fish tank for hours patiently just Mm -hmm. trying to be still so they wouldn't be afraid of me, and then they would go about and do their thing. And um, that's that's basically the type of kid I was. (laughs) So you can imagine. Yeah, I did did a lot of that kind of stuff too. Yeah. I mean, that's something you can't can't teach, like to actually want to be able to sit in front of a fish tank for two hours and watch lizards that don't do too much. You really got to have a mm-hmm. love for it, I think, even at that beginning stage, don't you think? Uh, I definitely do, yeah. And I think um, we were talking about it on the phone. You know, I was talking about doing things with intent. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's extremely important, especially if you have a diverse collection. You have to take the time to stop and look at each species you have as you're going through at least a couple times a week and say, you know, what can I do to improve this? What can I do that's better? And I think a lot of people, and this is a beautiful first stage thing, when you first get a species, you have to replicate its natural environment. 
in I'd say 80 plus percent of the time, that's absolutely the best way to do it. But sometimes there's artificial methods that can actually have advantages to them as well. Um, you know, sometimes a week longer of a spraying period for a species may do it better than it would in the wild. You know, keep it extra hydrated for your breeding season. And uh, there's lots of little examples like that of you just, you have to actually pay attention to your collection, not just read a care sheet and stick to it. Because, you know, I'm sure we've both seen over the years people will get a, an intermediate level species, they'll set it up, they'll take care of it, but they won't really pay attention to its exact needs. If you're not looking at that hygrometer and it's got to stay above 60%, the animal's going to get thin, you know, and sometimes you can turn around, sometimes you can't, but it's better to never let it get there. Yes, I understand. And some of these species are very sensitive, uh, and they, you know, they they can tell, like, if something's just a little off, right? I mean, it'll throw their whole thing off, right? Some species, definitely, and it's, those are actually the species I like to work with the most. Um, mm -hmm. I like a challenge, you know. I don't think anybody that gets past one herperum doesn't like a challenge, you know, whether if it's producing the new morph, doing whatever you have to do to make that happen, or breeding something that's never been bred, or breeding something that's difficult, because once you've done that, you've owned it. You know how to do it for good. You know, and that's a good point. Something else that we uh, we talked about during the week, um, we talked about how sometimes, because leopard geckos, for instance, we have a lot of fans of the radio show that are um, hardcore leopard gecko enthusiasts, myself included. And what I've seen and what I've heard from what I've heard from people is that you know some of the breeders that are into the more exotic species, and not all of them, but some of them have a little bit of a uh, maybe an uh, elitist attitude towards people that just work with leopard geckos because leopard geckos are so common. They do. And they they, do. What, what are your feelings about that? It can, it can that? be a little frustrating. Um, and I'm certainly going to run into it. Uh, somebody I know has got me into some crested gecko morphs. Because uh, as she pointed out, my crested geckos are bald and they're not the most attractive. And she's right, you know. And I think looking at something and realizing you have to fix it is important. You can't have an ego because if you have an ego at it, it slows you down. And the realism of it is, is nothing that a leopard gecko morph or a Saltorius wyberba that I keep or a crested gecko morph that somebody else keeps is ever going to make it back in the wild. The sole purpose for that species being in your collection is for you to take excellent care of it and to enjoy it. So mm -hmm. no matter what it is, there's really no reason to kind of say, oh, that's not cool, you know, it's, it's common, or this isn't, you know, that's too complicated because I don't want to deal with it. And it's, uh, it's kind of a funny thing. A lot of people ask me what my favorite species is. And uh, they usually get a little bit of a chuckle if they know what it is. It's just uh, Heteronocha binaway. It's a little parthenogenic species. It doesn't look like anything from Australia. Um, yeah. And they're impossible to sell, and I don't care. Uh, they're parthenogenic. <laughs> they act like little monitors. The babies are tiny, which is what frightens people. Um, but they're just the coolest thing ever, you know. And it, I don't care if somebody says Sultorius wyberba is cooler than that or lychees or any other high-end quote-unquote animal, the fiscal aspect in the trade aspect means very little to me. Leopard geckos were actually my first species of gecko I bred, um, and I had a few morphs back in the collection about four or five years ago, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. I think the important thing is to enjoy it. That's what keeps you going. Yes, definitely. And for people that don't know, maybe you can explain a little bit about what, what parthenogenic means. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, parthenogenic, it's typically two different species that manage to produce together is how most parthenogenic species start. Um, and basically what that is is a single animal that can produce fertile eggs. You don't need a male and a female. Um, unfortunately, they're usually a genetic uh, a bottleneck. They usually end up throughout generations kind of fading out because they're obviously inbred each generation, but it can typically last a long time. Like, say, the heteronocha I was just talking about, um, those have been in captivity for about 13, 14 years now, and they're still mm -hmm. breeding strong. Um, but eventually they will be a genetic dead end because of that. But uh, parthenogenics are just a fun species to do. How does a species like that even become, you know, start out? It seems just odd that, like you say, like if it, if they, if the genetics degrade after each generation, over time they kind of just die out. How did they get started in the first place? Sure. It's usually the product of two full species. Two, I'm sorry, I should have clarified, two separate full species. Right. Sometimes when you have two species that are compatible enough to breed, and definitely not in all cases, it can produce a species that will be able to fertilize itself. It's kind of freaky, but it's cool. Um, but that is how most parthenogenic species are formed. And oddly enough, okay. uh, most of them are insular. Sometimes it does start off with a species that is sexually reproductive, like uh, two quick good examples, lychees. Um, I'm sure you've heard about parthenogenesis in, uh, you know, Rachidaculus lychianus, giant geckos. I've had several that uh, got to almost full term on dud eggs because my personal belief on lychees is, I never pair a female until she's laid a clutch of duds, but I always fertilize them for the heck of it. Um, or not fertilize mm -hmm. them, but incubate them. And most of the time, they really don't make it very far, if anywhere. But on occasion, and I'm talking about lychees I've raised from a baby up, you know, you'll get one that actually will start to develop. There was an interesting thing at a zoo. Uh, my part-timer, who's also my friend, Chris, that works at the local zoo, was telling me about. There was another zoo that actually had a virgin Komodo dragon, a female, and it was the first recorded case of it, she had dug up a clutch out in the yard and a few of the eggs, they didn't expect it. I'm not even sure if they knew the clutch was out there, actually hatched. So they go out in the oh yard God. and find a couple of baby Komodos. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, pretty crazy. You know, it's amazing how, uh, you know, how wildlife works. There's certainly fish that do that. There's some insects that do that. It's, a, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. I think, uh, yeah, and I think what's going on, and this is just my opinion, it's kind of like the placebo effect in a sense where, you know, they're exposed to outside stimuli. So, for instance, this female wasn't around a male Komodo, so it triggered something in her brain to set off certain chemicals perhaps that, you know, lit up certain genetic codes in her DNA, and then all of a sudden some changes happened, and boom, you know, she was able to, yeah. to, to fertilize her own eggs. Would you agree with that, Jeff? Um, I, I think it's a complex genetic thing, and I'm, I'm not really 100% how it goes. I just uh, I kind of know how the start of it happens. Mm -hmm. um, they're definitely something that I like to work with a lot. Currently, I've got four parthenogenic species of geckos and uh, one species of uh, other lizard, a night lizard, from uh, Central America that's parthenogenic as well. And they're, um, they're just kind of a fun thing to work with. I do a few species outside of geckos as well. Uh, frill dragons, Aussie waters, rankins, a few other oddball things, just to kind of keep it interesting. But I'd say probably 
95% of the collection is definitely geckos. Yes, and that that's that's what we're going to get into after the news because I want to uh, talk to you about you know basically what is it what's so special about geckos. I I know what I know what it is, but I want to hear it from you. Sure. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to go ahead and bring on our esteemed news anchor. Good evening, Gekonians. What's up, Steve? What's going on? Oh, not uh, much. We're, we're sitting here talking awesome gecko talk. How's everything oh, with you? Awesome, awesome. And, and Joe, you have an amazing collection. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I just I keep looking at the. Uh, I don't know if I got. I'm pronouncing this right. Salturius Wyberba. You got it. You nailed it. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. man, awesome looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're uh, they're one of my favorites for sure. I love any leaf tails, Australian or uh, Madagascan. They're all awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you? Uh, we'll we'll get to the news, but uh, <laughs> do you um, time, do you breed the, the? I saw you. You have the crocodile skinks. Do you breed those too? I do, yeah. Um, this is my first oh. year to get a couple of eggs out of them. Um, oh, I think nice. they're a good species to work with. They're uh, kind of like Karusha, you know, the prehensile tail skinks, monkey skinks. Yeah. Um, they're one things that overnight they just disappeared, and they're not particularly prolific. It takes three years for them to reach maturity as captive reds, as small as they are. Um, yeah. And it's just species I'd hate to see disappear, um, you know, from the trade, so it's something that I'm working on. I've got one captive bred pair that just started going, and this coming season I'm planning on picking up two or three more pairs of them for some more bloodlines to kind of work it up and build it up. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I've been looking for uh, captive bred for, uh, I don't know, a few years, and they're pretty uh, scarce. Everything, Everything's uh, field caught, you know. Everything's taken from the wild pretty much. Yeah, yeah, that whole genus is pretty interesting. There's about 13, 14 species in it, uh, but the only two you're probably ever going to see are, uh, you know, the red eyes and the white eyes are really the only more commons. Uh, but, yeah, they lay single-egg clutches, and you can expect somewhere between about three to six eggs a year. So not being particularly prolific and being sought after, they're not a super expensive thing, even captive bred. So there's something that people want. Um, I think if it's something I wanted to sell, I wouldn't even have to advertise it because I get four or five people ask off the website a year about them. Yeah, um, but I right could now, imagine. The point to build a colony. Nice. Well, uh, in the future, I'll, I'll definitely be interested. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I've got. A, I'm old school. I've got some dry erase boards. I keep track of names and species and contact info. So just. Getting with me on that, and I'll make sure when I do have them, I'll call you down the road when they're ready for you. All right, great. Thank you. For sure. All right, so let's get to, I think, good news. Um, good. Cool. This is not, this is separate. This is a U.S. ARC notice. Um, okay. The Illinois HERP Act was which is Illinois Senate Bill 902, was assigned to the Agriculture and Conservation Committee on March 19th. This bill will separate herps into their own code. This code 
would take precedent over all other Illinois laws and enforcement enforcement regarding herbs. Now, I just picked out there's a lot going on with this bill, and a majority of it, I think, is good, and I just picked out a few things out of it. Currently, it is illegal to keep life-threatening reptiles and venomous reptiles in Illinois. This act will allow some of these reptiles to be kept. Um, they're going to set minimum caging standards, which I think is cool. Um, a herp permit is required for breeding and selling indigenous species, which I wish I could you know, have one here in New York because there's a few things, particularly salamanders, that I would like to attempt to breed, but here you can't have them. So they're going to allow it there with a permit. Um, and this act, this is the best part, would remove the 15-foot constrictor snake limit as they are illegal currently in Illinois. And, and like I said, there's a lot going on in this bill that I I really think this is a, a, a really good bill for uh, for any state, to be honest with you. Maybe it but, could be um, like a model that they could try to, you know. Yeah. Act. Yeah, that would be real cool. Yeah, I, I was shocked when I was reading through it. I mean, it hasn't passed yet, you know, but okay. just having yeah. it proposed is a, you know, is a step forward, I think. Definitely. So now let's get to, I, I couldn't believe this story when I found it. I'm going to read the title to you. Mm-hmm. Guns, crack, pills, and pot plants found in Queen's apartment. So, the very first sentence in this article says, A police raid on an apartment in Sunnyside yesterday yielded quite an arsenal of loaded weapons, cash, and drugs, including marijuana plants, crack, and prescription pills. No reptiles, no reptile pets were recovered during this bust but there's always next time. What? Uh, that makes no yeah, sense. That, like that, kind of, that kind of upset me. I, I couldn't believe it when I read that. It says exactly that. They were. It was they're like trying, they're, they're expecting them crazy. to find reptiles they're, when they do a drug bust. I know what they're so trying I, to do. They're trying to link reptiles into the class of drugs and guns now to make them sound even more terrible than yeah. they're already doing, perhaps. Yeah, so I, I I was really upset when I, you know, saw that. I, I can't even, you know, there was no reptiles involved. Why even mention them in the article? Why even mention, right, exactly. I mean, oh, man. Yeah, that's Ugh. to me just ridiculous. And Jeez. moving on, members of the Atlanta Humane Society, Society rescued nearly 200 reptiles, including several species of snakes, lizards, and turtles, from a residence in Atlanta, Georgia. Authorities were notified of, a, of unhealthy conditions by a neighbor. He is facing several fines and charges, including animal cruelty, and the home could be condemned pending an investigation and inspection. So... Nearly 200 reptiles living oh, in man. filth. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. And a while back, let's see, what was it, 2006, 2007, there were pythons that were released 
with homing devices. I don't know if you you remember that, but uh, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Aside from being scarcely large and voracious, <laughs> Burmese pythons are also really good at finding their way home, according to a new research conducted in the Florida Everglades. In 2006 and 2007, they captured 12 adult pythons in the Everglades National Park and surgically implanted radio transmitters in the snakes to track their movement. Six of the snakes were released in areas 13 to 22 miles from where they originally were captured. To the researchers' surprise, the snakes figured out their way home. So they made their way back to where approximately where they were captured. It took the snakes three to nine months to get back there. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not all for re-releasing the animals back down there since we have an issue with it already, but (laughs) but that's cool. No, that is cool, yeah. I know turtles, tortoises are very good like that, too. Oh, yeah, we had one, I think it was uh, in Arizona, a couple months ago, remember that one that traveled like 50 miles or something, 30, 30 yep. or 50 miles, and found his way home? Yep. All right, and alligator fat, along with other animal fats, could one day fuel your car and other machinery. Uh. And, yeah, insert. In searching for alternative biodiesel materials, researcher Thomas Junk of the University of Louisiana and colleagues discovered that gator fat has been piling up. Alligators are now farmed for their skins, meat, and other uses, but no one thought to use the fat until now. Millions of pounds each year, according to the American Chemical Society, Oh, where am I? Lost my place here. Are thrown out each year. Um, But they're developing biodiesel with the fat. In one way, it's kind of cool because they're hunting them and and everything already. Right, yeah. You know, and I don't mind. Most of those are probably farmed, but man, that's. I can't imagine the quantitative amount you need to fit that, uh, you know, to fit for fuel. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of, one way I'm like, yeah, do it, because they're already, you know, they're, you know, they're killing them anyways for, for everything else. So use yeah. it. But on the other hand, I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, if it's being thrown away anyway, I I don't have a problem with it being right. used. It just, man, you would need that's such a big number, and I mean, fuel you'd have to have a very specific you know market to be able to use that through. And I kind of wonder, you know, what kind of machinery could take that, or you know, altercations you'd have to do to it to be able to even use it. Yeah. Yeah. And our last story, and I came up with my own uh, title for this, Man Makes Out with Snapping Turtles. <laughs> oh. Oh. So, 
<laughs> I've got some experience with alligator snappers from the zoo I used to work at. That is not a pleasant thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> coincidentally, it's an alligator snapper. <laughs> so. Oh, man. It seems there's a man in China who really, really loves his pet alligator snapping turtle. Enough to give it a big kiss on the mouth. Unfortunately for him, it doesn't exactly nope. love him back. <laughs> and there, uh-huh. now there are images. He, it looks like he was on the street, and he did this on the street, and somebody took pictures of it happening as it happened. And, oh my god! Oh my god! I could. I'm surprised he still has a top. Oh no! So it, it didn't pop him then. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's oh. there's photos of it, and and let me tell you, I, if anybody a fan of Howard the Duck, <laughs> because his, oh, lips up, <laughs> his lips swelled up so much, that was the yeah. first thing I thought but of. Was got Howard him. the Duck. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I don't, got him real good. That's I'm crazy. I now I, I've I've messed with snapping, you know, just regular snapping turtles before. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm surprised they didn't take his lip right off. You know? Yeah, that's what I would have thought. Yeah. It's just yeah, crazy. Yeah, they've got some bite pressure. And when you've got your forearm on the top of them and your, you know, your fingers just underneath that top part of the shell and you got it by the bottom end, if they whip around and snap at you, you know, I mean, if you know what you're doing, you've got control. Yeah. But I... Just know the force that that neck puts snapping backwards, keeping control of it. Granted, they're about 100 pounds. Um, I'm a six foot three, 240-pound guy, so I can pick them up. But I, I can't even imagine the force that would go into, even if it didn't bite down on his face, just that impact of getting hit with it. Oh, yeah. I, even though he's a total goof for doing it, I still kind of got a feel for this guy. That's a nasty shot to take. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it totally oh. looks like a whole other person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, before and after, it's just unreal. I'll have to Google it. Wow. Now, and then, according to, on the same article, according to Oddity Central, which is a web, a web, there's a website listed, the man was planning on releasing the dangerous reptile, That's this is what it says here, which is not native to China and could pose a potential threat to the ecosystem. He so he was planning on releasing it in China. Anyways. Oh man. Yes, he was giving it a last kiss goodbye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, really. Wow. So that was our last story. So I'll run down one of these stories were are false. So I'll run I'll do a recap real quick. Okay. Uh, guns, crack, pills and pot found in an apartment. No reptiles were found. 200 reptiles seized in Atlanta. Pythons have superb homing ability. Alligator fat to be converted into car fuel. And man makes out with snapping turtle. (laughs) Okay, folks. One of these stories is full. Everybody in the chat room, um, let's hear what you guys think. And, of course... We will give the first uh, go to our guest. Joe, which one do you think is false? Mm-hmm. Well, what sounds the most false to me is the uh, the alligator fat one, but fat does mm-hmm. store a lot of energy. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to go with hope that that's 
first story on the day didn't find reptiles as false, just because I really don't want it to be true. I know. She rarely jokes about stuff like that, but uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna think that I don't want that. That story pisses me off, Steve. I'm gonna be mad at you if that's false, or I mean, if that's <laughs> yeah, if that's the false one, I think I might be mad at well, you. Well, you got a point I got, there. I doubt he would have done that. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what? I I get my answer, and I'm uh, I'm not gonna be unfair and take it back. So I'm I'm just gonna roll with it. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> Not, but uh, don't worry, Steve. I'm just I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that that's true because I don't know. I'm gonna go with the Burmese pythons finding their way homes with the homing ability. I'm gonna say that one false. And let's see, uh, people in the chat are saying, yeah, a lot of people agree with the first story. They wish that's false. And uh, Buff Kitty says the gator fat. Mike says the Burmese pythons finding their way home. Yeah, okay. Which one is the false story, Steve? I wish the first one was the false one, but it's the 200 reptiles seized in Atlanta is false. Okay. Uh, so well, that's good. I, I'm glad that's... It's, that, yeah, it's that's cool. horrible. Yeah. That first story is just... I, I couldn't believe it when I, I read it. You know, I was like, what the... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, that's it's kind of funny how the general public has kind of a fear, you know, an innate fear of reptiles. I yeah. uh, used to work for a pest control company, and we'd get called out to this area where there's all these new homes out kind of in the woods, and I'd go out and get black rat snakes out of people's yards, and I'd re-release them. Um, but, you know, I'd try and talk to the people and get them to come out there because if you pick them up gently, they're actually pretty calm, you know, and I got about half of those people to touch them. And if you can change somebody's mind on something like that and realize it, the company might not like it because they won't get paid for me to go out again. But, frankly, I don't work there anymore. So, you know, I think it's, it's really important to put those, uh, those kind of things in people's heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's, that's, that's I, I, I've <laughs> actually I've done that just, you know, for friends and friends of friends where, I've you know, they've had snakes in their basement or – out in their yard, now go do the same thing, and, uh, and you know a lot of times up here it's a milk snake, and I'll be like, you know, these are like the best snakes you yeah. can you can have, you know, because <laughs> they're going to keep yeah. other snakes away, <laughs> you know. So yeah, but yeah, I try to do the same thing. Hmm. All right, I'm hearing that special tune. And now a moment. Herp history. All right, August seventeenth, nineteen eighty-nine. The title of the article reads: "Giant snake under found under Florida home." This was the first reticulated python recorded captured in Florida, and it was a twenty-foot, two hundred and fifty-pound python, a reticulated python. What year was this? August 17th, 1989. I think I remember this. I I I vaguely do too. Yeah. And I think there was yeah. video shot of it too. Yeah. That was I remember yeah. this snake. Yeah. Big yep. retic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yep. And that was August 17th, 1989. Right. Wow. Huh. That's crazy. Hey Steve, if you if you, unless you're if you're 
I know you got to work tomorrow, but if you want, you're welcome to stay on and uh, for a while and co-host if you like. Uh, yeah, I got to do some feeding and stuff before I go to bed. Okay. But um, I'm definitely going to be listening while I do that. All right. Well, but tell us what's I going on in your collection. It. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Um, not much. I was I was hoping I'd have eggs to tell you about today, but I don't yet. But I, I got thinking um, February was a short month, so I might be off by a couple of days. So I'm hoping tomorrow or Tuesday. I, I'm hoping I should have some ball python eggs. Okay, what about the geckos? Are they laying anything yet? Nothing. I, I just have the one clutch from the milii. And they look okay. Nice. And but I haven't seen any more from them yet. Hmm. And they're and, and I got them eat, eating out. I don't know if I told you uh, eating out of a dish. You did, yeah. You told us last week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mike works with the milii. Uh, Steve, when were those eggs laid? Um, probably a little over a month ago. Hmm. Did I say Mike? I meant Joe. Joe. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. How many, with the milii specifically, how many uh, weeks are there in between uh, egg clutches? I average about four to five, um, and I usually get around five to six clutches a season from them. Technically, you could get anywhere from about eight to ten, but I think that's really pushing it too far. So I'll mm-hmm. usually keep my males in with the females. They're the only technical knobtails that I keep the males in with the females for. Um, and by about the time that I get the third clutch, that's right when I pull them, and I'll usually get a few more fertiles after that. Okay, cool. so then he's, cool. he's probably so, right on schedule then for another clutch. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and you'll yep. see, I'm sure you know, you'll see the eggs right through her belly. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, nice. they're, they're both looking awesome. I mean, her her tail's nice and thick and and healthy looking. I yeah. I love them. To me, they look like uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm looking at the the universe when I'm looking. You know, I don't know how to explain. Well, there's little dots on them. Yeah, yeah they're they they're are a beautiful. really really cool species. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's right. a, another taxonomic revision that just happened on those. They were going to be in uh, Nephurus again with all the other knob tails. And they're getting put back to Underwoodosaurus because um, for people out there that um, are a little newer to geckos, digital lamellae are the things on the fingers that keep uh, geckos from, you know, they keep them climbing things to stick. Um, Underwoodosaurus mm-hmm. actually have weak lamellae on the bottom of their toes, which true knob tails don't, and they, of course, lack a knob. But they're, um, yeah, they're back in Underwoods. Huh. How many times has that been switched back and forth now? I can look it up for you. Um, I know it's been in Nephorus at least a couple of times. It's probably been in there more. I know. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, to me, when you look at the tail, the tail almost looks more like a Phylurus platurus, you know? It's not spiky, but it's that fatty, flat, heart-shaped tail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in a long thing at the end, and there's absolutely no knob on it whatsoever. Um, Yep. But, yeah, they're... A great species. I wish the other few species of them uh, would have made it over here a long time ago, but they never did, so I doubt we'll ever see them. But, yeah, there's currently a fourth species uh, got found a few years ago, so there's four of those. And uh, the only one you're probably ever going to see here, though, is Millie. 
Yeah. Wow. I love I love it when I'm uh when I'm in there cleaning or or digging around looking for eggs or anything, they come right out and watch me. I mean, they, isn't that great? Yeah. Oh, it's it's funny. They crack me up. Yeah. They, They're inquisitive. You know, yeah. They 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 come right out to see what I'm doing and I love it. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. That's cool. It's kind of funny when you hold them, too. They have that uh, kind of grip to your hand, whereas other nephurists pretty much have no grip at all. As long as your hand's low, you can almost put it upside down, and they'll still cling to it, because they live in uh, southern Australia, where it's a little bit cooler in these rocky outcrops and uh, forest-edge-type areas. So they literally are clinging to a lot of things as opposed to uh, an open desert species. I used to actually keep mine on... Uh, half organic peat and sand and I just do sand now for convenience but um, they can definitely survive on either. It's not like any of the other nephurists where you really want to keep them on just sand. All right. Yeah, I was when I had them I was mixing uh, peat moss and sand together at 50 Vesty. That's how I have mine set up too. Yeah, yeah. Holds good humidity, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. cool. Well, I hope you get a whole whole bunch more eggs this season, Steve. That'd be great. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm just gonna hold them all back. I think. <laughs> you yeah, should. Oh, you deserve yeah. it. Yeah. That's right. These uh, these are gonna be. I don't know how how much. They're not the easiest things in the world to to find and keep and and proliferate. I mean, they're not terribly difficult either. But you know, it's definitely no, worthy kind of surprised. establishing a colony. Right. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that um, they've been in the country for a long time now, and they're fairly prolific. So I, uh, I really, I honestly, it's one of those things I've kind of thought about a few times. I don't know why they aren't a little bit more common. Um, they're honestly, they're about the easiest knobtail, well, quote unquote, knobtail to breed, um, and not mm-hmm. even by a little bit, by a long shot. You know. Um, right. So, yeah, I'd expect to see more of them out there on the market, but for some reason there just aren't, you know. They're um, they're a great species, you know, and they're pretty inexpensive too. A lot of the knobtails get pretty pricey. Uh, it's like, yeah. say, Nephorus milli, right? I'll sell four babies depending on the coloration for about 400 to $500. But mm-hmm. Nephorus amii, the giant red spiky one, um, the rough knobtail, you know, I mean, it's like $1,200 for four of those. And uh, yeah. even though a lot of people like the Amy I more, I think is a hobbyist if you want to try and cover your expenses, species like the Millie or the Wheeler Eye are actually your better bet because I can mm-hmm. sell five four lots of Millie before I'll sell one four lot of Amy I. You know, once you right. pass a certain physical threshold, People want pairs. They don't want to buy groups of babies. And for the volume of geckos that I produce, and I don't really do a huge amount of any particular species. It's just the array. I don't really like holding on to the babies forever. I get them to a point where I know they're defecated, they're eaten, they're healthy, they've got some size on them. And then I rarely want to raise stuff till it's sexable. I just want to get them going in groups. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, what else is going on, Steve, before we let you go? Anything new out in your collection going? Is that it? Um, nope, that's it. Um, well, I had uh, my last gargoyles hatched uh, a few weeks ago now, I think, and they, they look awesome. I, mean, they, oh, cool. I, I say that about everything, so. 
they all are. Of course. We we get it. We're all in the same boat. We're all addicts with you here. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, Ricks are cool. All right, well, cool. Yeah. All right, well, Steve, I appreciate the news, of course, and uh, thanks for the Hurt History tonight, and uh, I guess we'll catch you again uh, next Sunday. All right, I'll see you there. All right, yeah, it was nice to meet you. So people can find you. Oh, um, check me out on Facebook and YouTube at BC Barker Creations. And nice oh, talking awesome. to you, too, Joe. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Have a great night. You, too. All right, take care, Steve. All right, we got a few more minutes before the uh, the mid-show break, but before we go, I just want to uh, let everybody know in the second half of the show, we're going to be taking your calls for Joe, and uh, anything that you guys want to ask him about um, more exotic species, Australian stuff, um, that's your chance. And uh, Joe is uh, very generous, and he's going to be um, uh, giving a uh, gargoyle gecko up for the raffle. So uh, for callers... Uh, one of the callers is going to get lucky and get a baby gargoyle gecko tonight. So uh, that's pretty cool. But, uh, Joe, before we uh, brought on Steve for the news, uh, one of the questions I was asking you is uh, geckos in particular. I mean, you know, the reptile in her hobby is so diverse. We have snakes, lizards, turtles, salamanders. But geckos really have a very special place. And what is it that you think is so appealing to people about gecko species? to keep in captivity they're um they're adorable <laughs> you know people you see a baby gecko just about whatever species it is and people kind of get that all look you know that mm-hmm. all cute baby gecko look on their face and i mean they're right you know the six foot three 240 pound mma guy i i, I look like a 12 year old when i open up my incubator and i see a new species hatched out for the first time um, right. you know, I, I just don't think there's really anything you can do to go wrong with keeping geckos for introductory level reptiles. Um, you know, crested geckos, um, leopard geckos, like I started with and still love, um, you know, there's just, they're great starting points. They teach you fundamentals that you're going to need if you want to try trickier species down the road. Um, there's just, there's nothing you can really do to go wrong with geckos. Um, I kind of like turtles and tortoises a lot too, but that's one of those things that it just takes up so much space. Um, and it's kind of a personal decision for me on that of how many people am I going to sell to that are going to take care of this baby animal for 40, 50, a hundred years, you know, so it's, uh, one of the things right. I like about some of the rarer geckos is most of the people that get into them already have their fundamentals down. Um, and to be honest, there's been a couple of occasions I've refused sales to people on a more delicate species that obviously knew, you know, that they were coming into this almost brand new, having never kept anything. And I typically just pull them aside and politely say, hey, uh, if you like that, I'd recommend, you know, maybe this species. Um, it'll be easier for you to take care of. I guarantee it'll be easier for you to produce, and you'll have a better experience with it. And down the road, if you're still interested in that other one, just let me know. And if I'm out, I'll find somebody that has them for you. Well, that's the way to handle things. I, I agree with that. I've had to turn. It's always in the best interest of the animals. Um, you know, these aren't these are living things that that we're uh, passing on. Of course, um, would 
Joe, what what are the? Are you you told me that you have over a hundred species going in your collection now. Is mm-hmm. that true? Yeah. So, uh, currently, after the last pickup at Tinley, I'm sitting at 115 species right now. Um, wow. I got to hit the website. It's um, it's probably about 19 species behind right now. Um, oh my god! But I just got uh, done getting everything out of cool, and I'm in the middle of uh, writing that book that I told you about. So uh, right, when that's right. done, I think when that next phase is going to happen. Yeah. But okay. uh, I'm now, actually writing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you're fine. Um, I'm writing a book on uh, basically just beyond the basics on taking care of geckos and uh, breeding. I noticed a lot of the books on the market cover the fundamentals pretty well, but there's all these things that it took me years to figure out um, with the Internet, without the Internet, looking at things myself, talking to friends and other breeders. And uh, I just want to make that information more accessible. You know, it's going to be a cheaper book. It's not going to be like one of those $40, $50 Chimera-type deals, which are great books. I love them. I own a ton of them. Um, but it's something I just want to put in people's hands and, uh, you know, get them interested in different things, you know, make people's techniques better so they enjoy the hobby and they want to keep working with more stuff. That's that's it. That's the whole thing. And out of all these species that you work with, um, that are definitely a little bit more rare in the trade. Which do you think are pretty are the most popular ones out of these, you know, rare species that you work with? Um, when I go to shows, I would say, or online, um, the things that I really sell out on, I've got 11 pairs of lychees. I'm sold out from last season, and I've already started my wait list for this season. Um, oh, wow. Lychees pretty well for me. I don't know how well they do for general breeders because I have a lot of people offer me wholesale lots and I don't do that because I want to sell what I produce and I produce enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but lychees move pretty well for me. Um, Chondrodactylus, uh, the giant African ground geckos, they sell pretty well for me, but um, they're a little trickier to take care of and breed. So they're one of those things I'd recommend to somebody that's been doing it for a little bit. Um, leaf tails, you know, I, I get so many inquiries um, on the Australian leaf tails every year because they're not a slam dunk to breed. Um, you really, even if you're good at it, you need to mess with them for a few years before you've really got it down packed and you can regularly produce them. Um, I never produce enough of those, and I don't want to flood the market, so I'm not going to do too many holdbacks on it. Um, knobtails, oh, people love those things. Um, every Tinley Park I do in Chicago, that's the biggest show I do every year. I vend in October and I go in March to have fun. Um, I rarely come back with knob tails. Those usually sell out pretty well, too. Yes, and I, that's one of the species that I definitely want to expand our conversation on in the second half of the show. Um, we're going to take a quick break, everybody. Uh, keep in mind, during the second half, we're opening up the phone lines, and the phone number to call in is 646 646- Four seven eight five three three one. Again, it's six four six four seven eight five three three one. Everyone, we will be right back. Hang tight. Gecko Nation Radio is a David Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by. 
Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need, from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. And if you're looking for quealty food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www.rainbowmealworms.net. ABDragons.com is your source for the highest quality dubia roaches, whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps. ABDragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out ABDragons.com online and on Facebook. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species, including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit SupremeGecko.com for his available animals and supplies. Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. Ohio Gecko is famous for amazing tangerines, snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at ohiogecko.com and at expos in the Northeast. He is also the owner of geckoforums.net. All right, everybody, we are back, and uh, we are here with Joe Hub tonight of Australdonian Geckos and Dart Frogs. Um, Joe, I think in this part of the show, let's talk about some husbandry for uh, the knobtail geckos, because they are, you know, one of the most common, I mean, one of the most popular of the rare species to work with. And, uh, oh, yeah. I think, I think, yeah, I think part of the appeal with the knobtails is, you know, like you were saying, geckos have a very cute appearance all around, but the knobtails have a very cute and comical appearance in most cases, and I think that's what makes them Thank even you. more appealing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is your favorite to work with out of the knobtails? Uh, it's another one people look at me kind of funny, because um, I've worked with more species than I have, 
Um, honestly, Wheeler Eye. You know, it's even though it's the most common, um, Wheeler Eye, it really pulls my interest because it still maintains a lot of its natural behaviors um, that it would have in the wild. Um, they dig sand up on their bag on their back to hide themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, they do the, the arching. They do a lot of displaying when you introduce the males to the females. Um, yeah. And they're, they're one of the toughest ones, too, which is a breeder makes me feel a little bit better, too, because, you know, when you're talking about something that's about $150, it's within somebody that's new to the hobby's range. Most people that new aren't willing to drop a lot. So knowing that with a little bit of good advice that animal's going to do well, I feel good uh-huh. about that. Yeah, the uh, the smoother skin type knobtails, those are the ones that I'd really recommend keeping. Um, even though Millie are kind of smooth, I'd keep Millie, uh, Wheeler Eye, or even though they're more expensive, Amy Eye, before I touch Levis or Delaney or any of the other ones like that. Because the, uh, the adults aren't so hard to keep, but the babies of the smoother skinned ones can be pretty fragile. And if you get a shed stuck on, there's a good chance you got a goner, you know. So yes, the, uh, the rougher yes. ones are usually the best ones to go with to start. It's amazing that some of these even survive in the wild, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It, it genuinely is, yeah. Um, and Jeez. there's probably some mortality rates as well. You know, I'm sure you hit a, a drier season or for some reason they can't find a moist enough burrow. I'm sure some kick it just like some get ate. But, yeah, yeah, it is. Well, I've kept the uh, the Wheeler eyes, and I've kept uh, uh, Levis, and uh, I find them both fascinating. And because uh, Wheeler eye is going to be the most the more popular species, let's touch on the fair husbandry. Um, what what requirements uh, does it take to keep a Wheeler eye happy and healthy, Joe? Sure. Um, for starters, one of the biggest things I need to impress on people is sand. Um, mm-hmm. Those things, they don't do well on really other types of substrates, specifically Wheeler Eye, Amy Eye. Those species that really live in deserts and semi-scrub areas as well. Um, but sand, it's kind of like trying to keep a person waist deep in water if you're keeping them on something moist. They just aren't going to do well. Uh, something I do that's a little different than some other people, uh, there's two general thoughts on how to keep those. One is keep them completely dry which if your ambient humidity is fine, you'll never have a problem with that. If it's 55, 60% plus, you're probably good in your house. Um, but Wheeler Eye, and I'm sure you know from having kept them, it points the one part of shed that will usually stick on is on their head. And if that dries on good, it's really, it can be gotten off, but it's not easy for somebody that's never done it. So I like to keep little moist boxes, even with my Amy Eye in my Wheeler Rye because I tend to have a drier room. I run whole house humidifiers in my rooms to keep it at about 50%. And sometimes it'll zip lower than that. So I do twice daily sprays. Um, But yeah, moist boxes are a good fail safe even if you have a moister house. Um, Shoe boxes work just as well as tanks. How I set mine up is I actually keep my males um, in shoe boxes because it's a little easier maintenance-wise, and I specifically keep my females in 10-gallon tanks. And the reason is I use nest boxes. I don't use moist sand on one side for them 
and I make sure that there's a side opening entrance. For most terrestrial species, it's really important. Some will still utilize the top one and it won't matter, but some like Diplodactylus, um, some Lacasium, if you don't have a side opening one, some will actually die egg bound. They won't figure it out. So if you have a terrestrial gecko and you don't know what you're already doing with that species, a side opening hole, if it's an odd species, is usually a good way to go. Um, Interesting. But yeah, yeah, I bury the sand to that entrance point too, so they can't possibly miss it. Um, and I've noticed my males and my females, even if they're not gravid on occasion, I'll see them in there. And if I see that they'll utilize something, I certainly don't think it's a bad thing for them to have it, um, unless I see something that's happening to their detriment, which I never have with those species. So, uh, sand, uh, moist small box with a side opening hole. Uh, two schools of thought. Some people use water bowls. Um, if I'm going to be gone, like doing a show for four or five days, I'll put them in there to be safe. But um, I don't think they utilize them well unless they have to. And even then, I don't think all of them will. I usually just spray the sides of the plastic or the glass on uh, the dry end because it's a little bit cooler. And they'll typically just lap it up. You know, I do it right before the lights go out because if you do it midday or morning, it'll dry out before they even notice it. Um, but two or three sprays on the sides of the glass a week and I don't really have a problem with it. You know, they do well that way. And the Wheeler Eye are pretty prolific as well. Um, something uh, I'd really like to impress on people that I made a mistake on them personally when I started with them is I would get them to uh, a couple of grams past the breeding size. And, uh, you know, I'd put a male in with it. If you got a really good male, they'll be a more aggressive breeder, and I've seen them copulate but the female wouldn't develop eggs. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I started talking to a friend, he emails back and forth from Germany, and he put a point, a really good, really good point, um, that these are a desert species. Um, and we feed them a lot more in captivity than they're actually going to eat in the wild. So mm-hmm. even though most geckos will lay eggs once they reach a certain size, it's a little more common with some desert species that if you get them two size in captivity, they haven't necessarily had a chance to physically mature yet. And once I realized that, and that I'd already sold for quote-unquote breeding size females, um, I decided next time I'm going to give them another season. And sure enough, when I did that, every single one of them bred for me. They just did it a year past, you know, reaching breeding size. And I have had some lay eggs right before breeding size and at breeding size. Um, But it's definitely something to look out for with some of those uh, more arid species. You know, that's that, that's a. I think that can be attributed to a lot of different species because, you know, even with leopard geckos, if our females are obese, they're just not going to be good egg layers. Oh yeah, chondrodactylus, yeah. the ground forms the same way. If they get overfed, they won't breed. It might even wreck them from breeding for good. I've heard it will. Uh, since I knew it, I haven't let it happen. Knock on wood. But uh, yeah, they're one <laughs> of those species you should really only feed about three times a week and not huge meals. Right. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, we have a caller on the line. Actually, a few here. Let me. Uh, let's see. Let's. Uh, okay. I'm gonna grab. This is. I know this is. This is Elsa. Right. I'm gonna grab Elsa two five three area code. You are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hi. How you doing? Good. Hey. How are you doing? What's up? So I was on your website, and I was looking at all those tempting little things, and you. You seem to have a lot of them 
at least in the pictures, on sand uh, mm-hmm. as substrate. Is, is that okay? It totally depends on the species. Um, okay. If you see a species in a picture on my website on sand, it's probably what I keep it on. As a matter of fact, it will be what I keep it on. Okay. Um, yeah, some of those pictures were taken in a photo box, though. So some of the desert species were on a black background. Um, oh, okay. But if you see it on sand on the website, it's a species I keep on sand. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Okay, For sure. Elsa. I know what I know what she's referring to. See, in the in the in the leopard gecko community, we we get the question a lot. You know, is sand good or you know not for leopard geckos? Because a lot of the people that start out with leopard geckos get their geckos from the big chain pet stores, and they always sell them a bag of calcium sand with the gecko, and uh, know, we try to yeah yeah we try to steer them away from that. But uh, yeah, so yeah. it's just probably wondering I'm, if that's safe. Yeah, it really depends on the species. I mean, I'm sure you know leopard geckos. Um, they don't really live in open deserts on loose sand, whereas some right. of the species that I do, um, they do live out in the desert on open sand. Some of them live in more compressed sand areas, but they're exposed to it, so they've evolved for their digestive system to deal with that. Um, yes. But, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Most of the natural pictures I've seen of leopard gecko habitats are um, either somewhat rocky and sparsely vegetated and it's more of a compacted type ground than a loose soil. So, yeah, I personally never kept leopard geckos on sand. Um, you know, I mean, things like that are always a matter of conjecture and a personal opinion, but um, some species I do definitely. Yeah, they do better on it. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and take a caller from the 432 area code. You are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hey, guys, this is Daryl. Dave, how you doing? Tom? Let's enjoying the, uh, doing good. Enjoying listening to this, and uh, I, I do have a question for you. Sure. Uh, I noticed that I can't remember who posted it the other day, but there was a a group of Diptodactylus gelatus or something like that. Oh, yeah. I know yeah, they're a very yeah. popular one as far as Diplodactylus go. Yes. How how are there any available, and how hard are they to keep? Um, if you I would say they're intermediate. Um, they're, uh, you basically, you would want to keep them on sand. Um, definitely do a, a moist box. They will lay in that. Um, again, a side opening hole on that because Diplodactylus and a similar species, Lacasium from Australia, really utilize those, uh, those side holes. Um, I've actually bred Galeotis before. I had kind of an odd experience with them. Um, my first clutch looked totally infertile. I candled them after two weeks. I didn't see a bit of orange veining, red, anything. Um, I just left them in there because you never know. Um, exactly. And there were two little babies <laughs> uh, wow. 50 days later. Yeah, and I, it just kind of tripped me out because they're the only species I've ever had do that. So I don't know if it's a norm. That pair got passed on to a friend of mine that wanted them. He was talking my ear off considerably more than me, and I just used the funds to get another project because I'd already bred them once. Sure. Um, but, yeah, they're, uh, they're a good one. I like them a lot. The key points you want to keep in mind with Diplodactylus and Lacasium species, uh, Strophorus as well, uh, is that they have the capacity to produce more than they really should in a year. And if you do that, um, the babies later in the season really won't grow up to be good breeders. Um, you may actually kill the rest of its breeding life. So with most of those, I really don't like getting more than about three to four clutches 
some specific ones about five. Um, but if you go heavy on it, it, I think it's one of the reasons you don't see more of them in the hobby because they're actually not very hard to breed. It's because people don't just know that. I don't think they're doing it intentionally. They overproduce. It makes weaker breeders, and the whole chain just starts right there, and the species kind of disappears from the trade, which is a shame because there's a lot of really, really cool Diplodaculus, Lucasian, and Strophurus, and that's a common thing for all three of those. Do you? How would you, do you uh, Yeah, that, that was my question, Dave. Thanks. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was the question? How do you get them to stop producing eggs? Sure, uh, you stop pairing the male. Um, with oh, so they don't, they don't retain the sperm like the leopard geckos? They will, uh, but, like, here's a good example for you. My Diplodaculus tessellatus, um, I will get around four clutches from them in a year. If I introduce the male right after they both get out of cool together, I'll let them stay together for two weeks, and then I pull the male, and then after she lays a clutch, I'll put him back in for two weeks and then pull him again. And then she'll lay an additional clutch or two after that. But typically they'll stop after that. If you keep putting the male in, then she's going to keep going for, you know, a clutch or two past that production. Absolutely. Mm. Well, cool. I, yeah, those, those really uh, caught my eye. Whenever, I can't remember who posted them. But uh, oh, me too. I'd like to, I, I, I would like to get some of those. So there you go, Dave. Keep your eye out. I need some of those. Yeah. Yeah, I'll let you know they're good. when I see they're them. Good. They're good. They've got a lot of personality, too. Yeah. Well, they're just unique. Uh, they they kind of look like a cross between uh, – they almost look fat tailish to me. Yeah. Yeah, they, they do. like a leopard gecko. Yeah. Do you, um, do you breed and sell them, Jeff? Uh, Galeotis, I don't. Currently, the only Diplodaculus I have is uh, Tessalatus and uh, similar to it, Lucasium damium. Uh, this coming year, I'm probably going to add Vitatis, and I might add Galeotis. Um, they're one of those things that there's only three species out of the ones out there that are really marketable. And when you have a big collection, if you have, I have some species that are marketable because I enjoy them, but there's only so many babies that you can't sell that you want to end up with at the end of the year. Right, um, right. You know, so it's Diplodaculus are one of those things that I love, and I'll always keep three or four species in the collection, but I'll never do, like, a monster amount of them because I've always been able to move them by using them as trade to work with other species. But uh, Galeotis is marketable. You should be able to sell those. Uh, Polker is another one that will sell, and Vitatis will sell. Um, I think all three of those are pretty good ones to get if you want to be able to recoup your money because the Galeotis are a little expensive. They're one of the more expensive of the, uh, the Diplos. Do you know anybody that has any? Um, a friend of mine, John Boone, I know he's producing them this year. If you Google J-O-N, John without the H, and yes, then B-O-O-N-E, uh, you'll be able to find his website. It'll be the first one that pops up. Um, but, yeah, he's producing. I don't know if he's waitlisted, but it never hurts to ask him. I will do that. I appreciate oh, that. Um, on Facebook, too, uh, if you type in Jason Smith, just spelled like normal, his uh, icon is the Nephorus Amii head. He also works with Galeotis. He's actually producing from the ones I used to have. Ah, cool. 
I will do that because those are definitely uh, something I'd like to try to get a hold of. I like those. You should. They're a rewarding one to work with. If there was one Diplodactylus that I could only work with, you actually nailed it on the head. It would be Galeotis. They're a really cool one. Yeah, I saw that the picture was like five or six young ones that somebody had produced or gotten, yeah, and they were right. all on one page. And I was like, wow, those are really, really cool. I even asked uh, all my Agamanyu males hissing at me over here. So I actually talked to John Scarborough about them, and he didn't know anybody that had any. Yeah, I have some uh, I have some insights for you too about that, Daryl. We could talk tomorrow. I'll give you a call. Okay, fair enough. And I'll, I'll get out of your hair. And uh, I'm enjoying it, guys. You're doing a great job. Awesome. All right, thank you. Thank you, Bob. Bye. All right. All right, Joe. We have another caller here. Let's go ahead and take the caller from the three three zero area code. You are live on Gethsemane Radio. Hello, this is Brooke. Hi. Is Hello. This? Hey, Brooke. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm enjoying the show. Um, I wanted to ask Joe um, what he thought about, um, like, morphs in different gecko species. Like, if he thinks it's a good thing to work on or if he wants to keep them pure. Good question. Um, I think it's really, it's a personal decision. Um, I think it's a matter of what you prefer. You know, it's it's what you enjoy. I like the diversity of naturally occurring species because there's always a new challenge. You know, there's a different challenge. I've read a little over 150 species of geckos, and there's 1,490. So I haven't even made a dent. Um, and that's, that's why I like the species-specific thing. I have done a few morphs in the past. I do enjoy them. Um, this October Tinley, I'm actually going to be picking up quite a few crested gecko morphs. Um, so there's something I enjoy. I've always got one or two in the collection. Uh, David, you were asking about the uh, Uidura Casanalawi, um, the Australian velvet mm-hmm. geckos, and we were on the phone. And uh, mm-hmm. if you look on my website, I actually do work with the amelanistic version of those, and mm-hmm. I work with the uh, hypermelanistic version of uh, the giant African ground geckos, Chondrodactylus angulifer. So I, I always work with a morph or two, but uh, I really go for the species. That's kind of my thing. Okay. Oh, that's cool. Um, all right, Brooke, do you have any other questions? Um, one more. Uh, sure. Mm-hmm. What, in your opinion, is the easiest leaf tail gecko to, like, start with? Sure. Uh, we're probably talking Madagascan. Um, so I, there's some conjecture on this one. Um, some people will say Sakurai, and I think the adults aren't bad as far as taking care of my personal shot, when I tell people this is what I get, is you're a plate of tankali. And the reasons why is it's larger, so it's harder for it to dehydrate. If your angle is to produce, and most people, by the time they want to work with your that's in their head, uh, baby sakurai can be more fragile. They're a lot smaller. Um, again, like some other species, if you have a tough stuck on shed, you could have some real problems. Um, I've hand-manipulated sheds off of them before, but it's very tricky. Um, Henkelai are easier because the babies are about two and a half times the size of the Sakurai babies. So even though it's a bigger enclosure, I go Henkelai 100%. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Brooke, for calling in. Thank you. Yeah, good question. Yeah, definitely. Um, somebody posted a picture 
in the group today of, um, let's see, I even saved it. Yeah, uh, it was Euroflatus Sikari, uh, and um, wow, amazing camouflage. Like you can't even, you can't even see this gecko on the on the tree branch. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, Sikari are they're um the wild ones are actually in my opinion a little bit better than a lot of the captive bred ones. It seems like over the generations. And you were around then, so you remember seeing the wild cots coming in with those wild, almost neon lichen patterns. Um, yes. It seems like with every successive generation of breeding, um, they tend to dull out some. You still get some firecrackers. You'll get a really nice one that hatches once in a while, um, but they've uh, they've kind of dulled out. But they're um, they're a very cool species. And they they can vary in appearance. Like they can have the greenish moss tones in there too. Like where it's you know, mm-hmm. the different colors. And can they change that or darken and lighten like most geckos, depending on their mood? Yeah, yeah. Uh, mine do lighten and darken a little bit. I wouldn't say it's as extreme as like a crested gecko, um, where it can look mm-hmm. like an almost totally different gecko. Uh, mm-hmm. My Henkelai actually do a, a little bit more, I think, of an extreme color change. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm speaking from you know, um, a relatively small group. Right now I've got um, a couple of pairs of breeder Sikori and a holdback trio, a um, few pairs of Henkelai, a whole bunch of holdbacks. Um, you know, so it's, it's one of those species that's so variable. I think you've got to work with a lot of them before you really know. Um, I could say I produced 17 baby Sikori last season, and even from the same bloodlines there was, a pretty good amount of variance, you know. Uh, there's more okay. similarities between one bloodline than the other, but they uh, they can be pretty variable. Yeah, and I'd, I'd really like to know what it is that gives some of those wild ones, like if it's dietary or what, it gives them more of the, uh, the brighter, mossy-type colors. Um, so I give mine UVB, you know, to try and rule that out. I'm a huge fan of uh, that for Europlatus because – a lot of people have that general rule on nocturnal geckos that, no, it doesn't need UVB. Well, even though some of the forests these species sit out in are somewhat thick, some of them are also aimed out a little bit more in the light, you know. And I've noticed, mm-hmm. like with my Henkelai, for example, I actually do give them a basking spot, and they certainly utilize it. Um, so that would stand to reason in my head anyway that if this animal will angle towards that heat in a room that's around 72 to 75, um, which is a normal temp for it, stands the reason that it's going to angle for that sunlight on a tree and it would naturally get that UVB. Um, yep. So I hate to not utilize something that could be helpful for it. And even, you know, they say even for people, if we were to get, you know, 15 minutes of sunlight a day, that's enough D3 to keep our, you know, keep us uh, healthy. And um, even if these animals are getting a small amount, even if it's the last few rays at the end of the day or in the early morning hours, they, they, I, I feel they need something. Don't you think a lot of these nocturnal species? I think a lot of them get, do. Um, I think it's yeah. UVB is a underrated on some of them. Um, like the Diplodactylus we were just talking about. Um, mm-hmm. I bred them in racks and I bred them with UV and they do well either way. Um, but I do notice that the colors pop on them better with UV Eurodactyloides, um, agricoli, man, you put UVB on those, they're a totally different type of green than if you don't have UV on them. 
Now, I know people that have bred them to the fourth generation with no UVB and never had a problem. You pop them out, you can tell those internal, um, you know, calcium sacs look just fine. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's something to be said for it, you know. It, it's, it's variance, you know, within an enclosure because these animals in the wild, they have things to choose from, you know. And I think it's kind of up to us to give them that. Like a really good example uh, since we're going to probably talk about nephura some more, this is something I utilize, is uh, I use heat pads um, for the bottom for my females on glass tanks. Now, what I'll okay. do is I'll take a clay saucer because uh, clay, of course, insulates heat, and it holds it really well. I'll put it on an angle over a flat stone that's buried all the way down to the bottom of the tank or another clay pot bottom. And by doing that, the underside of that, conducts the heat a little bit better because they're sitting right on the heat pad and it's a little bit more enclosed. Some will actually bury the sand to a point where it almost covers that whole area. And that bottom area is in like the mid-90s, which a lot of people say they won't utilize. That top part of the clay pot is really more like in the 85 to 88 range. And something I've noticed is a lot of my gravid females, they will go right under that thing for like a week before they lay. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons I consistently produce nephurus species. Um, and when they're not gravid, um, a lot of them will just, you know, kind of sit out on the, uh, the clay pot saucer bottom. And I actually give them heat 24 hours a day because they have a cool side and they have those two thermal zones so they can choose what they want to utilize when they want it so they have optimal conditions. Mm, interesting. And, you know, this is an old argument in the, in the leprechaun world, but I think you – you can definitely offer your opinion on it. We uh, a lot of, because leopard geckos are nocturnal in nature. Um, some breeders only give them calcium without D3, assuming that you know they don't need D3 from from somewhere. And I always argue the fact that well, yes, they're nocturnal, but they still have to be getting D3 from some source in nature. And I agree. So I've always yeah okay. So I've always given my Pepper geckos D3 calcium, and I've never had a problem. Plus, it's speculative how much an animal can actually absorb D3 uh, through the stomach. I mean, it's not the most ideal way to absorb D3 anyway. I know in people, you know, you could take vitamin D3 tablets all day long. Yeah. It's really doing not that much for you. So, yeah, so, you know, what are your feelings on the issue? Um, D3 is an enormous topic, um, and I'm happy to Mm -hmm. tackle it. (laughs) Okay. It's uh, with leopard geckos. I agree with you. Um, Even nocturnal species sometimes are more crepuscular in certain times of year. The temperatures in these environments aren't stable like they are with us. You know, they get Uh a consistent cool and a consistent breeding season as far as temperatures and humidity levels go. In the wild, it's tossed up in the air. You know, I mean, these animals have to be able to utilize different areas at different times, and that brings me back to the crepuscular things. A lot of nocturnal species are active, and I'm sorry for some of the viewers, crepuscular is active at dusk and dawn. Um, a lot of these species are, and they do get UV seasonally. Some species I've kept that I've been told by multiple people are completely nocturnal, I've mm-hmm. seen come out during the day. In fact, yes, um, was... like, perfect example, uh, Sikori, I have a, a horizontal branch that's screwed in from each side of the enclosure that I have uh, one of my pairs, well, actually a trio in, um, and there's a UVB bulb, a zoo, well, is it 
permissible to say the brand that I use or? Yeah, that's fine. It's all good. Okay. Um, Zoomed brand, and I'm a big fan of their UV. I don't sell their products. I just I like it a lot. Um, uh-huh. I actually have females that will sit on that branch, you know, within under a foot from that UV. And out of all of the other areas in that enclosure, even when they had two vertical branches, because for a while, or horizontal, I put a second one in lower to see if they had a preference, and they always went to that higher one. Now, it could be because they are arboreal, but they always seem to go right towards the center where the UV reads the highest because I use a UVB meter, and when you put a bulb on a cage, it's not consistent across. Those wavelengths don't come down evenly normally. Um, It's one of the reasons I use ZooMed is the zoo I used to work at, they bought a bunch of different bulbs, and some of these bulbs emitted almost nothing past a couple inches, one of them actually made some kind of higher levels than it should have, and it was really the only brand that we used that put out consistent wavelengths. And here's the crazy thing, because you know the whole replace your bulbs every six months. I had mm-hmm. ZooMed bulbs, and Zoo does too, because I'm still in contact with friends there. Um, three-year-old bulbs that with a meter are putting out consistent, still usable levels of UV. And that's not saying every ZooMed bulb is going to do it. You need to test your bulbs if you're going to use it past six to nine months, but I've been very impressed with it. You know, I like them a lot. Interesting. Would you think, though, also that some of those geckos that are usually nocturnal in your collection um, that are mm-hmm. utilizing the UVB are perhaps using it because they they don't feel, they actually know by now that they're not in nature, so they, they're not afraid to be picked off by an eagle or something, so they're just, you know, hanging out because they, they know they can, perhaps, or do you think there's more to it? I think it's possible. Um, I think a lot of times when you put an animal in an environment and you give it multiple different things, you know, to choose from, if you see a consistent behavior over multiple generations, you're probably seeing something. If you're going off of one specimen, it's just like people, um, you know, not as variable, but they do different things. You know, like you take 10 people roughly the same size, Somebody might prefer it in the 70s. Some of them prefer it in the 80s. Um, you know, and right. individual animals certainly have their preferences. You know, when I keep a group of a specific species, I tend to try and pay attention as much as I can to what are they utilizing. It's going back to doing things with intent. When do I see them on a heat source? What is the temperature of that heat source? Is every animal in the enclosure using it? Um, do I maybe need to put two heat sources in individual barriers? Um, but I think uh, mm-hmm. I think some do really seek that UVB. I don't think every gecko does it, um, but I think a lot more than people suspect. And it, uh, I don't think it's a harmful thing to put on there at all. I would argue that in you know with leopard geckos, um, yes, they're nocturnal, but if they're say a leopard gecko in nature is feels that it needs D3 for, you know, its body, and it, it has that urge, I guarantee you that gecko is going to hang out, you know, in, you know, during the day at some point, even if it's just for a few minutes, it's going to pop out and get soak in some rays oh, and sure. do what it needs to do, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, if they have a need, they have no reason to deny it. You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it feels good to them. They're going to want it. You know, sometimes we crave things because we need certain nutrition. Um, 
people as a whole probably aren't a good example of that one because our bodies are geared to uh, to want to pack on calories during certain times of the year, and we certainly have more of a variance in our diet than any reptile ever will. Um, right. I certainly like my uh, fatty barbecue on occasion, but um, okay. Well, let's uh, let's 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 jump back into the into the um, the knocktails a little bit. And um, now we covered the husbandry. Let's let's talk about food. What are what are good food sources for these guys? Sure. Um, I think for the uh, the Underwoodosaurus Millie, um, commonly people just call them Millie. I've raised those to the third generation on nothing but crickets and never had a problem. Um, so very prolific, robust, good animals. Um, remind me before the end of the show to go over what I feed my crickets. Um, it's not a commercial brain. It's just something I do. Um, well, you can touch on it now if you want, Joe, so we don't forget. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what you feed your feeders is exactly what you feed your animals. Um, and I think it's really important that they get a high level of nutrition. Um, I do a combination of uh, turnip greens, collard greens. Um, these are things that are cheaper than your normal lettuces, and they're much higher in nutrients. Uh, protein is such an underutilized thing um, to give your animals. Uh, some of these feeders, they have some to them naturally, but I actually take a Kellogg's Special K Protein Plus cereal, and I completely pulverize it, and uh, I give that to them. And one of the reasons I like utilizing that is, unlike Total and a lot of the other brands that are like 100% of everything, if you read it, it's like 20 to 30% of your daily allotted, you know, nutrients. And too many nutrients can be just as bad as not enough. So I'm not a fan of trying to uh, overdo it. And I think you can give them a little more than they get in the wild, and it certainly helps them. But you utilize, like, a lot of desert species. What they're eating isn't getting a lot of nutritional content, in most cases, not all. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I'm a fan of that. Um, something else I do is uh, fresh sweet potatoes. Um, I soak them in water in my refrigerator overnight to make sure that those crickets are uh, hydrated. Crickets can survive without having some source of hydration, but you got to keep in mind that the tropical species probably are drinking water off the glass, the plastic, the water bowl, et cetera. But some of these desert species, really arid ones like Chondrodactylus angulifer namibiensis that actually live out in the desert, they don't really have a lot of opportunities to lick dew or get fluid. So almost all the fluid this animal eats throughout its entire life is in its prey items. Um, mm, okay. Hydrating your prey items, making sure they have at least some protein source, not just vegetables, although some vegetables can be a good source of that. I like giving them a little extra. I actually have a friend that's um, a pretty major breeder, and he actually gives his seasonally uh, chicken, beef. He actually gives them whole protein sources. Um, I kind of oh, go wow. in the middle ground. Everybody has their own opinions, you know, of what works mm-hmm. best. Uh, but I, I like that middle ground for those. Yeah. Okay. That's, um, uh, that's primarily what I feed my feeders. Well, that, that's, that's a good point. Um, well, you are what you eat. And we certainly got load our feeders, our, our worms and stuff for our leopard geckos and such. Um, what about roaches? Do you do any roaches for your, for your geckos? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, nutritional content of a lot of roaches is superior 
um, to most crickets. Again, what your gut loading is going to help with a lot, too. Um, I've worked with a lot of different species over the years, and what it really boils down to for me is two species. Um, dubias, because they're a little bit larger. You know, there's a lot of calories in them, and they're great for, like, larger uroplatus, uh, frilled dragons. You know, the juvie ones are good for sicori and uh, chondrodactylus, nephrus, et cetera. Um, and then the other one, which I think is underutilized, and I understand why in some states because they're restricted, you can still have them here in some other states, just not all of them, is the uh, Turkestan roaches, the lateralis. And here's why I love them. They're about the size of a cricket as an adult. They reach breeding size in half the time it takes dubious to. They're considerably more prolific. And if you work with small species like I do, the babies are the size of pinheads, and they lay egg sacs, Utheca. So yep. I separate out egg sacs in different size enclosures and put them up in the warmest part of the warm room, and then I have a consistent supply, you know, of smaller ones. I can get the bigger ones out of there, raise some up if I want to. But absolutely, um, I'm a huge fan of roaches, and it never hurts to kill your cricket, though, a little bit easier. Um, I'm going through about 5K a week right now, and I'll probably end up bumping it up in a little bit. And I'm actually not far from building a whole rack for more roach colonies because uh, I think a varied diet is usually a really good thing. You know, I mean, I'll never fully knock powdered diets, but um, something I definitely do that's a little different, and then we'll go right back to the nephrus, like uh, my new Caledonian geckos, I kind of take a look at what are these things eating, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Figs, they eat a ton of figs in the wild. And a lot of people say, Joe, I know that figs are expensive, but, yeah, you know, you give them a little bit of an extra diet. Let's say you get one more lychee, you more than covered your fig cost for the year. Um, I actually do uh, a combination of whole fruits. I do mangoes, bananas, figs, um, papaya in smaller amounts. I'll put in for variants in flavor kiwis, strawberries, blueberries. Um, I've been adding the Pangea Complete because I like the ingredients that are in it. Um, I always add extra calcium. Um, extra nutrients um, is always for me. Um, I've experimented a little bit with the yogurt, um, and I actually noticed if you use it consistently for more than a few weeks with new Caledonian species, it seems like the fecal gets firmer. It definitely does with the fig as well. Um, but Felsuma day geckos won't touch it, or at least mine haven't. And I'm currently working with six species. Uh, they won't touch the yogurt for me for some reason. Other people have said they will. So, you know, maybe it's just because they've not had it for so much of their life. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah, roaches are, roaches are great, you know. Yeah, we touched on them. We talked about a bunch about them last week with Loki reptiles. They breed of uh, several different species. And, yeah, they were saying about the lateralis and how good they are. Um, they're very fast, too. They really jumpstart this you know, feeding response. <laughs> in a lot of these geckos, right? Yeah, there is. There is. Um, they're ninja quick. Um, one of the things that I like about them in the dubias, I'm not a fan of climbing roaches. Uh, it's easy to keep them in an enclosure that you're keeping your roaches in, but when you look at how many enclosures, if you have a large collection, it's just a matter of time before they get out. Um, right. You know, so I, I like the non-climbers a lot. A little bit of an urban myth, on uh, Turkestan roaches is that they can climb glass and they can climb smooth plastic. 
they can climb rough plastic. They cannot climb smooth. They cannot climb glass. I've bred them for eight years. People mistake them for lobster roaches, which are a totally different species. Um, mm-hmm. They do have good nutrition, but the babies are tiny. And if they breed in your enclosures, you're going to get them loose in your rooms. Um, so I'm not not a huge fan of lobsters because, in my opinion, I think Turkestans are just a little superior to them for the aforementioned reasons. Um, but okay. if getting pure lateral, pure Turkestans are a great product to work with. Nice, yeah. I'm gonna. I just got rid of a bunch of roaches because of a roach allergy. I think I was telling you about. But if I were to start yeah. doing them again, I would. I would try the ladder, Alex. I would give him a shot, but uh, yeah. oh, we'll see. Um, getting back to the nephrus, and also I just I, remind I've everybody. I've got a bazillion of them, dude. I'll, if you want some, I'll ship you a few containers. I've got tons. Oh, really? All right, maybe I'll pick you up on that and, and give him a shot. For sure. Yeah, I'll try him. Uh, yeah. Um, well, Joe, you know, oh, just for the people listening, uh, we got about uh, 15 more minutes, so if you guys have any calls or any questions, now's your chance to call in, 646-478-5331. Um, Joe, getting back to the the um, the, uh, the nephrus species now. Now we've covered the, uh, the feedings, and what about supplementation for these guys? How important is that, and how do you do it? Sure, um, I dust. Um, some people say to dust every other feeding. Um, mm-hmm. Skip it once in a while. I skip dusting like once or twice a month. I dust almost every time. Never had mm-hmm. a negative effect. A lot of geckos, those calciferous sacs on the bottom of their necks, um, you know, endolymphatic sacs, if you open their mouth, you see the calcium sacs at the top of their mouth. That's something I think it's important to monitor on your animals, even within the same species, because some may digest it and absorb it better than others, even within the okay. same animal type. Um, but, yeah, I, I absolutely do for an first just about every single time. For them, I do a mix. Um, I do about two-thirds no D3, one-third D3. Um, I'm a big fan of the RepCal uh, calciums. I'm also a big mm-hmm. fan of the Zoomit calciums. Uh, one of the things I like about the Turkestans over crickets is when you dust them, physically look at it. Like with uh, RepCal, say if it doesn't stick as good as Zoomit does, you will physically see more calcium on those Turkestans because there's more surface area. I think it's a little more porous and rough for it to stick to um, than you mm-hmm. will on a cricket. Um, transversely, that Zoomed, have you ever used the Zoomed calcium? I'm, I'm a diehard RepCal guy since I was eight oh, years Rep-Cal's old. great. Ten years old. Yeah. Sure. I've only used RepCal. Uh, That's it. The, uh, the Zoomed calcium, it is the most micro-fine calcium I've ever found. It is almost like, you know how talc is? It almost sticks to your finger if you put your finger in it. So when you coat something with it, like a cricket or a roach or anything, even though my personal opinion, I do lean a little bit more towards the reptile. I also like reptamin. Um, I, I think uh, that, that Zoomed calcium, it just encases it. Uh, when I ship you the roaches, I'll stick a little baggie of it in there so you can try it. I'm banking oh, cool. Thank you, almost the amount of calcium on what you shake it to. I'm not sure okay. what mechanical process they're putting it through, but it just clings and it's micro-fine. Wow. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I'll give it a shot. I mean, 
you know, I've always stuck with, with uh, the Reptile, because I'm very used to it, and it's never failed me over the years, you know? Sure, yeah. Mineral is a great product, stuff. too. Um, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I I love it. Mineral has been around forever, you know. And you have a point mm-hmm. with the Reptile. If a product's been on the market for a long time, probably yeah. would have weeded itself out if there was a problem with it a while back. I do, on a lot of things, I like to go with some of the old school stuff. Yeah. So what about multivitamins? What do you use for that? Um, the Reptile brands. Um, I, I use okay. that. And instead of doing it like once or twice a week, like a lot of people do, um, what I do is it's actually 20% of my calcium mix. I would rather see my animals get a smaller, consistent amount of something where I know a lot of those minerals and vitamins aren't going to last in their system um, mm-hmm. over a period of time than I would to just do it once or twice a week. So my average is I've got a couple of different shakers with varying amounts of D3 depending on what I'm feeding. Um, mm-hmm. yep. but about percent of my total calcium is that exactly interesting wow i can see that's good for the listeners to know that you know with these different species it, these requirements do get a little bit more specific you know with leopard geckos we mix mm-hmm. i mix the herptovite and calcium 50 50 it's very easy but yeah like when you start you know learning the, the behavior habits and the husbandry of these other species you're gonna have to tweak things a bit and that's what that's what yeah. you're, you're talking about Right, and that's what you're talking about with your book, right? You're going to be, you know, letting mm-hmm. some of these secrets or these these things that you've learned, these specific little tricks to the trade, you're going to be, um, you know, explaining a lot of that, right? Oh, yeah. It's it's going to have illustrations. It's going to have supplementation, you know, plans, breeding plans, different tricks with, uh, you know, with incubation, Um uh, you know, with nest boxes, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can do nest boxes. Um, Nephurus especially, you know, a a lot of people are really in the old school theory of wet down sand to angle your tank, you know, and you can do that, but it's, it's a lot more work than using those nest boxes. And two things I specifically do with my Nephurus nest boxes is when I wet them and I flatten them, I completely flatten them. Um, so that when I walk through those rooms, because those are in tanks, I can glance across each row every time I walk through, and I can see who's digging in what enclosure. And because I have so many enclosures, I use those uh, two-ounce plastic solo cups to feed a lot of my new Caledonian geckos and forgivers geckos. I just dump one of those. Anytime I see a nest box getting dug in, and I leave that animal alone until I kind of see that it's left its alone or that it's reburied it, um, and then I'll go in and I'll take the eggs. Um, but I think that flattening it every time, it makes it so much easier to see it. And the other thing I do is with a lot of species, I will specifically use a different color substrate for them to bury their eggs in than the color of the egg. Um, because a lot of species will bury it straight to the bottom. When you flip it up and look at it, it makes it so much easier to tell. You know, with a lot of those white sands, sometimes it makes it hard to see the uh, the eggs. In some eggs, like Australian velvet geckos, um, most Australian leaf-tailed geckos actually are semi-sticky when they come out. And uh, they can be hard to see because they'll actually adhere some of whatever they're laid in to them. So they almost camouflage themselves. Ah, 
You know what? I do want to mention just very briefly, I'd like to talk a little bit about Oedora and uh, Castle Naui. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Um, yeah. But the yeah. Velvet Geckos, yeah. they're, they're yeah. great. And, you know, they're not very popular. They're not too prolific in the in the hobby, but um, they are becoming yeah. a little bit more popular. And I have the um, I have Castanaue, I have Robusta, um, and I, I think they're great. However, I haven't really uh, bred them yet. Um, can you quickly, in just a few minutes, go over a little bit of husbandry or, or actually breeding technique with uh, with them? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Castanaue, it's uh, a northern Australian species, so it doesn't need as harsh of a cool of a lot of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I actually keep mine in one of my warmer rooms when I cool them now. I pretty much shut the lights off, and it gets in, like, the low 70s at night, the high 60s for about seven, eight weeks. Um, mm-hmm. They're a little bit more tropical than most people would expect them to be. They're a little bit more deciduous in truth, but in your home it's going to get drier than a lot of deciduous circumstances. So for the first few weeks for those and for Uidura, now Nebulifera robusta, I spray the crap out of them. I mean, like, three, four times a day I'll spray them heavy. Um and you'll usually start seeing some breeding activity after that. Um, the amelanistic ones on the Castanelli, and I let people know this before they buy them from me, um, I think the gene pool on that is nearing its end on that specific type uh, because your first year producing them, you'll get, you'll get a good, I'd say, four to five clutches, but then after that it seems like it dips down into half infertile, half fertile, and I tried for a few years to go harder on the cool, less on the cool. Um, they certainly get adequate nutrition. I even put UV on them. And um, I think it's one of those things that, because it's a species where they're not really going to come in unless we can get some more unrelated bloodlines from uh, Europe and outcross them, you know, to start retrying to populate them, I think the amelanistic ones are just going to die out on their own. You know, I tell people pretty much if you're getting them, you should probably get them as a really cool, unique pet um, because it won't be a good breeding project for you. I went and got a um, regular male for that purpose. Not, not that I, I didn't know about the the, uh, the gene pool, but I I just wanted to create normal yeah. versions too. So I guess that would be good to you know let give my you know, male a rest this season and just use the regular, correct? Right. Definitely, definitely, I would. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. actually, yeah. I work with down, and I'm I'm about to you know, heat them up again. So um, I think they'll, nice. I'm hoping that I'll have a good uh, first season with them. We'll see. Yeah, spray the heck out of them. Spray the heck out of them for the first few weeks. I usually see after about a week, week and a half of spraying, I actually start hearing like the little squeaking going after the female kind of thing going on in the tank. Oh, cool. What kind of substrate do you use for them? Do you keep like a lay box in there as well? I do. Um, yeah, what I do is I keep... Um, I keep, uh, it's like an organic peat with about 20, 30% sand mixed into it for the regular substrate. And I do it pretty thin uh, because it's easier to dump and keep it clean that way. Um, I only put about a half an inch in there. And when I spray, I really aim for like cork and uh, other things that I have in there. I don't aim for the floor substrate. And I use a nest box that I keep moist in there because of that because they're smart enough to know they, they won't try and lay in the dry area, but they'll automatically be drawn to that nest box, and they'll lay them in there. Uh, cool. Just be kind yeah. of careful when you're digging for them, because like I said, with Uidura, the substrate really clings to the egg, so sometimes they're kind of hard to see. 
and the eggs are a yeah. little bit smaller than you expect for the size of the females. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Now, uh, just for the listeners, uh, well, Joe, this was a very, very informative show, and, and you obviously know a lot about uh, gecko care, which is just very impressive, I might, I might add. Um, I'm and I, I, I'm always learning. It's a process. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But it's just the fact that, you know, you've gotten this far is, is really impressive. And, you know, I, I yeah. definitely hope to be able to, um, you know, experience more of these rare species too. I have a few here. Um, I'm sure. not looking to get into hundreds, but, you know, definitely there are a few key mm-hmm. ones that I am definitely eyeing up. Um, so maybe in the future, if you like, I, um, you can do some, you know, species-specific episodes if you want to. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm always open for that. I'm free. I definitely do it. I, the one thing I'd really like to say to people is, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you're starting off with a hobby, you know, be hungry for it. Learn absolutely everything you can. And don't ever get to a point five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road where you're complacent and you just go, I know what I'm doing now. Because I see so many people after 10, 15, 20 years that do that that could become so much better. And I do see people out there that do that. But you don't ever want to be complacent. You don't ever want to say, I've read that so I know everything about it. You can always improve. You can always get better. Don't ever be comfortable with what you think you know. Always learn more and listen to absolutely everybody. I don't care if it's somebody that's brand new or somebody that's been doing it for 40 years. You can learn so much just from having an open mind and listening to everybody that has something to say. Yeah, no, I agree. That's that's cool. That's that's definitely cool. Well, Joe, um, if you want to take a minute, and if there's anything else you'd like to, to add uh, with your closing remarks, uh, now's your chance. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, uh, you know, everybody have fun with what you work with, uh, you know, enjoy it. If you have any questions for me, um, whether if it's a species I've worked with in the past, a species I work with now, I honestly don't care if you're buying from me or not. Feel free to email me. Um, you know, you can go through my website, um, australodonian.com. You know, you can Google it. I've got a Facebook page. Always happy to help because I know what it's like to have species that there's no information on that you might not even be able to Google. And I've always got five or ten minutes to help somebody. That's awesome. All right. Thank you so much for coming on with us tonight, Joe, and I'll be in touch with you soon. Great. Thanks for having me on, David. Have a great night. All right. Anytime. Take care, Joe. All right. Wow. Wow, guys, that was a very information-packed episode. I, I, I'm i really impressed with Joe and uh, his knowledge, his knowledge base. And, uh, yeah, I'm probably going to be hitting them up for some cool geckos in the future, I'm sure. But, um, this is this is one of those episodes that we could have gone on for hours. I mean, there's so much we could have talked about. But uh, we're going to have Joe back again, and we're going to do some more species-specific episodes uh, for everybody. Um, now, before I give my closing remarks, we're going to do the outro, and I'll be right back, and then I'm going to play a cool song for you at the end of the show. Hang tight, everybody. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created 
by Jeremy Turgent of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www.usarc.org. If you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. Okay, everybody. Uh, My closing remarks tonight are this. Uh, The amount of geckos and reptiles available today is very diverse. And I recommend that all of you really study what's available out there and find something that really appeals to your sense and taste. Um, there will be something out there that will truly move you. And, you know, for some people it's leopard geckos. Others it may be corn snakes. Some it's monitor lizards. But whatever you decide on, make sure you take it seriously and become a true master of it. That's the way to really do things in life. All right. So, everyone, I want to thank you all for uh, tuning in to this episode. And next week we have a great show. We have a double show uh, with Dave Durham, the lizard whisperer, and Ray Autry of Rise Against Rattlesnake Roundups. Uh, so don't miss it, okay? And I hope to see everybody in the chat room next week. Uh, so everybody have a good night until our next show. And here's a cool song to leave everybody with. Be safe and sound. Thank you.